that. We've been doing this other thing for so long. Hey, everybody, it's Poor Man's History. I'm your host, Jody Arnold, here with Tyler Haas. Hi, Jody. How's it hanging? Uh, it's hanging in there. So this is a uh, growth of our current podcast. We started by telling true crime and, and weird history stories to each other as we got increasingly shit-faced. And then we started doing some real big boy work and sort of decided we didn't. It wasn't a place for these sort of stories anymore. Investigative journalistic work, not <clears throat> right. big boy work. Right. But we still want to do these sort of stories. Mm-hmm. So We decided to start a new podcast mm-hmm. where we could do this stuff, have a good time, and it's separate from our other thing. Right. And if you remember, uh, we used to start these episodes with a reading from Emily Post's Etiquette. Yeah. I would like to read you something. Please. The details of White House etiquette. No. <clears throat> when you are invited to the White House, you must arrive several minutes at least before the hour specified. No more unforgivable breach of etiquette can be made than not to be standing in the drawing room when the president makes his entry. The president, followed by his wife, enters at the hour set and makes a tour of the room, shaking hands with each guest. When your turn comes, you bow. If he talks to you, you address him as Mr. President. In a long conversation, it is proper to vary Mr. President with Sir occasionally. You call the wife of the president Mrs. Washington and treat her as you would any formal hostess. You do not sit down as long as either the president or his wife remain standing. No guest, of course, ever leaves until the president has withdrawn from the room, but they then bid each other goodnight and leave promptly. Don't smoke unless you are invited to. Gentlemen always remove their hats as they reach the portico. Do not take a present unless you have cleared it with an aid. <laughs> a small package taken from a briefcase or handbag will alarm the secret service men who are always present. <laughs> Not only should you not take a present to the president unless it has been cleared with an aide, but you should not send anything to the White House without receiving permission from his secretary or one of his aides. You may have had a successful hunting trip and wish to send the president a brace of pheasants. The gift must be cleared with the proper authority, otherwise he will never see or taste it. Good rules to live by. Mm-hmm. Get your pheasants cleared don't to the proper channels. Just, don't backdoor a pheasant to the don't president. Don't just randomly, you know... Nobody's going to get to those in time. They're going to rot. I mean, I've gone hunting and found myself with a brace of pheasants, and I was like, this is presidential material. (laughs) I don't know. I guess I'm just thinking about politics for some non-specific reason tonight. We're going to tell each other two stories tonight. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're each going to tell each other one. Who wants to start? I'll start. Okay. Let's get the laughs out. Although, oh, right, because I have a not funny one. Maybe it is funny. I don't know. I can make a joke like you won't believe. It happened in 1988, so I think we can make it funny. Okay. <laughs> Didn't you happen in 1988? That's right. Is that the story you're telling? <laughs> <laughs> I want to take you back to 1950 in a town called Mosinee, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Population 1,400. May 1st, 1950, the Wausau Daily Record Herald Front page headline, Mosinee seized by the Reds. So the morning of May 1st, the mayor, Ralph Crowenwetter, pulled out of bed by knocking at his door. People demanding he come down to the door. 
and when he went down, it was Russian soldiers. What? Arrested him and marched him to the town square at gunpoint. This is in Mosinee, Wisconsin in 1950. Mm-hmm. Mayor was marched to the town square by communists, along with the editor of the Mosinee Times. They're both arrested and interrogated, ultimately liquidated, the residents were told. What does that mean? Well, I will leave that to your imagination. That day, the residents of the city got a letter calling the day, quote, an object lesson in Americanism, and quote, you are the person who is revealing to the world how it is to live under communists. Enclosed with the letter were ration permits for food and gasoline, an entry permit to the city, and a red star to be worn on a lapel to signify that, quote, you are willing to play along and will voluntarily subject yourself to a few harmless inconveniences. So, I have some photographs. (laughs) The entire town was taken over. Movie theater. This uh, is a photo of the Wausau Daily Record Herald that says Mosini seized by Reds security police stage coup while city sleeps. What? Is this for real? So you might be figuring out, of course, that this is, uh, of course, an elaborate coup during the Red Scare to demonstrate to Americans what the dangers of communism was. Oh, my God. So this is like when you were in school and you participated in that thing where you were had a gun and were going to pretend to shoot yourself. Is that how it went? Uh, the school thing? Like, yeah. The SWAT team had to practice school shooting drills. Yeah. Uh, and I had to be a actor in it. Wow. This is co- okay. The elaborate coup exercise was the brainchild of the state American, the Wisconsin American Legion. If you're familiar with them, they are a nonprofit representing veterans. Uh, Mosny was chosen in February of that year due to its relatively small size, but also according to the Wisconsin Magazine of History, because Brigadier General Francis Schweinler, a member of the Legion's State Americanism Committee, owned and edited the Mosny Times. This position allowed him to help convince the whole city of... <laughs> the businesses and the uh, organizations in the city to take part in the, the event he dubbed, quote, the American Legion Day under communist rule. So for this day, they arrested the mayor and the editor of the paper. The paper was renamed to the Red Star newspaper. They showed propaganda films in the theater Uh, They set up checkpoints, checked papers. They abolished religious institutions, created slave labor camps where people were marched to. The mock coup included speeches by real former communists in Mosinee City Park across from City Hall. Students at Mosinee High School filled the gym and were ordered to stand in rows and listen to communist doctrine. One photo showed the police chief being interrogated by Soviet police, one armed with a knife, the other with a club. Printer didn't do a great job here but this is the editor of the newspaper being arrested this is the movie theater and the uh 
Commissar Joseph Kornfender reading communist proclamation to a mass meeting that morning. So the business owners, the mayor, the heads of this town are, are in on this, this big elaborate ruse, uh, but the people weren't. So they just woke up one morning and found out their town had been like red dawned. <laughs> oh my God. Communist propaganda films were shown in the movie theater and banners were hung throughout the city. Over Main Street, one read, One Party, One Leader, One Nation. On the paper mill, nationalized, operated by authority of the Council of the People's Commissars. And in the American Legion Hall, Commissariat of USSA Information. One photo showed Tom Martin, owner of the Red Owl, which I think was a, a bar or a pub or something, painting his store windows with an advertisement for Borscht. John Drengler, who owned the Drengler's Bar, made soup for the outdoor soup kitchen. How were the people told this was a joke? Uh, so... This is really would be traumatic, right? Yeah. There's a handful of interviews with people who were alive <laughs> when this happened, and, and uh, I'll read some of their quotes here. Everybody went along with it. Uh, There's a guy named Ryan Schmidt, who grew up in Mosni, I think. Everybody went along with it. I think it made people more aware of the communists. I'm sure of that. By evening, the mock takeover was ended by an Americanism rally. I don't know how they did this in one day, but the takeover and then retaking of the city happened by the end of the day. The mayor came out and like declared that like the Americans had won. The mock takeover was designed to demonstrate the evils of life under communism. Uh, it was planned in part by Benjamin Gitlow, a famous former leader of the Communist Party who was now a semi-professional anti-communist. This is uh, somebody who wrote a book on the Cold War. Quote, Different people responded in a range of ways, depending on their politics and the sophistication or otherwise of their worldview. 14 hours of the most smashing dramatic demonstration of what communism really is. The Daily Worker, I, I think this was, I don't know if this was a real like People's Party paper or if it was part of this day. The Daily Worker reiterated that fake communism had been put on display. One letter to the editor of the Washington Post asked a valid question. Aren't we all pretty well convinced of what totalitarianism means in any form? The publisher of the Madison Capital Times warned of the growing outlines of dictatorship that are looming over on the right, financed by the forces of monopoly and corporate money. So this is in 1950. <laughs> so this is a day-long takeover, and there's one thing I wanted to mention because this is how it ends. Yeah. They take back the town at the end of the day, and the mayor... Mayor Cronwater came out, gave a speech, took the town back. I'm guessing, like, said, gotcha or whatever, and Ashton Kutcher came out. <laughs> Hours later, Mayor Cronwater would suffer a cerebral hemorrhage, and he would die. <laughs> they speculated oh. it was probably because of all the excitement of the day. This fake communist takeover uh, actually killed the mayor. <laughs> oh, my God. In addition, the reverend of the church that was abolished... The reverend was like sent to the concentration camp. He had a heart attack and died. What? Yeah. Uh, so is there some sort of lesson? Um, Just a strange coincidence. Within a week of the experiment, they were both dead. And I think the, the quotes about th those men dying was like just a tragic coincidence. I don't know. It's it's I know like this day happened weeks after Joseph McCarthy's like 
I don't know his speeches that well, but I guess like the one he's like, no, like the craziest, the reds are in the shadows sort of like this happened right after that. And I, you know, current events aside, I always think of like the Cold War and the Red Scare as like a, a, just a crazy time when we were all of, uh, spooked by shadows and stuff. But yeah, here in Wisconsin, like the Red Scare wasn't enough. Like they put on a play. It's a propaganda poster, like come to life. Like the, the restaurants are <laughs> serving borscht and, and they had Joseph Stalin on the newspaper, the Red Star. Like it's just... They took the mayor out to the town square and <laughs> executed him or whatever. You know, first as a show and then later. <laughs> Did towns submit applications to be considered? Or was this town just picked without choice? Do you know? I'm guessing it started with the guy who ran the paper. Because it was... The idea started in the, the Wisconsin American Legion. And then I think that guy thought, well, I run the paper in my town... I know everyone else. I can make it happen. Uh, that is terrifying, right? And also, I mean, unless like I'm wrong, I don't think that's how it would ever would. Would everybody just wake up and like that's how? <laughs> yes, they they seize control over overnight. <laughs> yeah, like in just Mosinee, Wisconsin. <laughs> I guess you maybe would think it's everywhere and you yeah. wouldn't have any opportunity to know it's not. They already switched the the film reels over on the in the movie theater. <laughs> I think that could give you some serious uh, seriously traumatic experience, couldn't it? To wake up and to truly believe that this had happened at a time when there were people legitimately afraid of just the idea was so scary and then you wake up and that's your town wouldn't that really traumatize you then to be told oh that was just a joke yeah when i was reading about it i was trying to picture like the people who are in on it are you know the the dentist in town and you know a town of 1400 people like i don't know how good the acting is you know like it seems like it'd be very hammy and be a lot of winking and nudging uh, comrade, comrade, yeah. get in line, comrade. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so did did people like think people thought it was real though? All the interviews, nobody mentioned like, oh, it was like a funny joke that they were doing. Like, that's the other thing is I don't know, I don't know what it felt like to live during the Cold War. Like I don't know. I'm sure the threat felt very real then compared to sure. when I'm talking about it now. Yeah, yeah. But not just the adults. They like fucked with the kids in school. <laughs> There are people who don't have any gauge with which to measure if what is real. Yeah. And then to be told, like, oh, that was just the thing we were doing. You don't understand it because you're six, but everything's fine now. Like, what? I don't know what the, the A to B was. It didn't end with everyone pulling off their, like, their their armbands and being like gotcha it had an arc where like americans won at the end it's like well why do you need that if you're trying to teach a lesson <laughs> like aren't you supposed to be like see kids this is what could happen like in right. your story like the occupation lasted less than a day <laughs> yeah i wonder if other places did something similar to this Apparently, there's like a museum in Mosinee where you can, like, they still have like the Soviet flag there. At least when one of these articles was written. But I guess, I, I, I don't know, it, it didn't seem like it's 
super like it wasn't like, like a national project it was some weird no i guess people. it was covered nationally pretty pretty extensively and most need didn't it seemed like most need doesn't have a statue to this fun day or anything but uh i think it is pretty well known like in national media because no one ever fucking did this before or after but then yeah the mayor also actually died wow <laughs> as a result of the communist takeover <laughs> that is I don't even know how to react to it. Like it's, I imagine just everyone at the American Legion, like with a chalkboard, uh, <laughs> spitballing ideas for for like Stalin's <laughs> communism, and yeah, yeah, let's do that, let's do that. Rations, right? Send everybody rations. That'll yeah, be fun. yeah. All the store owners inflated their prices <laughs> like for this one day because that's communism. Yeah, sounds like they had fun with it though, and they kept the memorabilia. That's cute. <laughs> They had fun with it, though. Like, I, yeah, you know, I'm, I do not think that's fun. Like, I think I'm mortified by this idea. There is something um, fundamentally terrifying to me personally, I think maybe to most people, to have your sense of reality, like, fucked with like that. Yeah. But also... Wow. Yeah, not, not having reality fucked with, but then if at any point during the day you thought that this was uh, uh, a ruse, you would probably have that feeling tampered down by the fact that you'd be like, wait, everyone would have to be in on it. So, no, it can't be. This has to be real. <laughs> also, if you're trying to scare people about communism, like, it seems like you would be a lot more bitter about the people in power where you live, like, did this to you. And they were like, see, this is what the bad people do. Yeah. <laughs> like, you did this to me. <laughs> yeah, we tortured you for a day just to remind you of how good it is in America. Huh? Are you grateful now? I mean, we were just pretending to be the bad people. <laughs> so there's a museum in Mosinee. There was at some point devoted to there there's at least a museum in which some of the items from this day, if the museum is still open are available for public viewing. Yeah, someone mentioned a history museum in Mosinee that had some items of it, yeah. Let's see here. One of the articles mentioned that, uh, recently we learned that a rare book dealer was selling a collection of more than 40 original press photographs of the mock takeover. It says here that the event received regional and national press coverage aside from contemporaneous newspapers and a copy of the Red Star Communist newspaper. The society had relatively little documentation about it. Thanks to Vernon Karstensen, endowment fund the society was able to purchase this photo collection for the archives photos document virtually every aspect of the day's events because they are press photographs they also include captions to describe the persons and actions being shown which is very useful for research purposes this collection will be of great value to researchers interested in the cold war period of wisconsin and the way our state citizens responded to the controversies and tensions of that time it didn't print very well but that's the editor there's another picture of the mayor being arrested and it looks so the, the pork pie hats like on these like Soviet thugs are just like it looks well, it really even, funny. This guy's got like a pipe hanging out of his mouth. Like, hey, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these are posed photographs. One has a shotgun just leveled at him across yeah. the desk. And yeah, the. <laughs> The newspaper editor has uh, uh, a dress shirt, jacket off, tie on, sleeves rolled up, and he's sort of like bracing against the arrest. And yeah, a, a pipe 
opinion out of his mouth. Again, I don't know how closely you looked at this guy doing the arresting. This looks like something out of a fucking like parody movie of a James Bond. (laughs) It's, uh, well, I mean, I guess if everything in town is different than when you went to sleep, you're probably not going to look at that picture and be like, hold on a minute. Here's what bothers me is if I woke up, (laughs) well, in a dream world, if I woke up and my world was drastically different. (laughs) 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 Go on, go on. (laughs) Regale uh, me with this, this word picture, this imagination (laughs) scape you're (laughs) describing. (laughs) (laughs) If you woke up and like walked outside and there was a checkpoint at the end of our road, wouldn't there be people who would talk to their neighbors. How was there no violence? How, how could, why did everybody just bend over? Like, wouldn't somebody be like, um, guys. It seems like this could have gone sideways really yeah. easily. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't just be like, oh, okay, I guess that's how it is now. I mean, I think I would be like, we need to kill some people, right? Like, we got to get out of this. Yeah, there's things I, I uh, beakers. I don't know how much to fill up. Like uh, the Cold War feels like a time when there was an an invisible enemy in a way that like there's xenophobia now, but there's also the internet. There wasn't a, an outlet to get a different take. You know, like yeah. so I don't know how how much it was just baked in that communism is fucking scary. Everyone understands that, so maybe that guides you part of the way. The other part is, if you're a deep thinker, you're probably afraid of America under the Red Scare, like what people do to communist sympathizers. So if you wake up and your town is is run by a bunch of like theater actors, the last thing you want to say is probably like, I think everybody in town is faking this communist bullshit because they want to scare us. You probably can't say that either <laughs> if you actually think it. Yeah, I I feel like I got to let it go. There's just a, a a lingering, horrible feeling I have about this. And I just have to step. Yeah, no, it's uh, McCarthy. One of those figures that as long as I've known about him, I thought it was a relic of like a time where like, boy, America was crazy back then. Uh, the guy who shot Lincoln, like, wow, these villains of our history. But like McCarthy's come back in a big way. <laughs> When, when you find out Roger Stone has Nixon's face tattooed on his back, and you think, like, wait, people think Nixon's a good guy? I thought that's the one thing we all agreed on. <laughs> no, people like McCarthy, turns out. <laughs> yeah. It's just Nixon's face, too. It's not, like, a stylized. It doesn't have a zinger. It's just his face right here, center back. Like, it's... <laughs> Give me the, Nixon's face. Do you have Nixon's face in your book? I'm looking through your portfolio. I don't see Nixon's... Blank, emotionless face. I just want the head. (laughs) When people say, hey, Roger, where do you want to go to eat? I say, you got a question. You ask Nixon. (laughs) He's got tricky dicks on both sides. Oh, we got our episode title. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I wish I would have done the funnier story. (laughs) So you can see, it'd be hard to laugh about this after what I'm sure is going to be a grisly, horrible story. (laughs) Yes, but this is less heady than what you shared. Mm-hmm. This is more straightforward. Okay. This is about the time that there was a serial killer in Menominee, Wisconsin. 
And this isn't like in 1950. This is in the 80s. The year you were born (laughs) is the year that this case went to trial. Okay. I'm going to tell you about Elvin Taylor. So in 1988, a Dung County jury found Elvin Taylor not guilty by reason of mental defect or disease of the March 26, 1987 gunshot murder of Timothy Hayden, who was a UW Stout maintenance worker from Menominee. So Hayden was found in his home lying dead in a pool of blood. An investigation led to Taylor, who knew Hayden. Guess when Taylor was arrested? At Hayden's funeral. Um, Doesn't that feel like something that only happens in movies but not real life? <laughs> yes. Uh, which is why I have questions. Is the investigation important? Like how they went from one to the other? I couldn't really find... It was hard to... F- I have a lot of sources compiled to get as much details as I have. Well, the, the reason I ask is like, okay, so why was this guy at his funeral? Or was it on the same day? He wasn't like over the casket and the police came. Well, he was at the funeral. That's fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. It isn't completely strange for somebody who is the murderer to show up to like a search party or, um, you know, like in an effort to make it look like mm-hmm. you're not the murderer. Because what kind of murderer would go to a funeral? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess that was my first question. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you this. If you got murdered and the police know your murderer is at your funeral... Do you want them to arrest them at the funeral so that justice is seen through there at your funeral? Or do you wish they would give you a moment to have a funeral, wait till he's going to his car to arrest him so he doesn't steal your thunder? (laughs) They probably could have waited, right? I mean, was he going to run away? I mean, I don't know if it was like we need to get this guy. Also, maybe he was at his car. It just says he was... Mm. I, I, yeah, I'm picturing him just shouldering through. Excuse me, the guy who killed this man, right here, everybody. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. Rewrite your eulogies, everybody. <laughs> Plot twist. Okay, so they rest God him at damn the. It. <laughs> so Taylor confesses to this murder. He says that he drove to Hayden's residence in Menominee early in the morning of March 26th. After being invited in, the DA at this trial is telling the story of what happens, right? He says that Taylor snuck up behind Hayden, shot him several times in the head with a 22 handgun. Then he took a gun that was there and smashed Mr. Hayden in the face with it. So Hayden was one of four people who were killed by Elvin Taylor. When Elvin Taylor got arrested at Hayden's funeral, he stated that as a, quote, soldier of God, he was driven to kill by messages he received from the radio and television. Um, that feels like serious mental illness here when you are, are getting kill messages from the radio and television. So he's... Four, four kills? I don't want to split hairs, but... Yeah, 
a serial killer. I don't mean to sound disappointed by his um, by his body count. I, I'm just wondering what. No, constitutes. I will tell you because I believe I know, but I want I want to make sure. A serial killer is typically a person who murders three or more people, with the murders taking place over more than a month, and including a significant period of time between them. So I think sometimes people envision serial killers as just like a Ted Bundy or, you know, something like that. So he is a serial killer, but people... CSI has spoiled us all. We all want. Yeah, you you just think of, that's a serial killer. So Uh, he's a serial killer. Honestly, I guess four kills sounds like it's not that many, but then you think like murders are either crimes of passion or they're serial killers. Like you don't kill one person and then accidentally kill another person, right? <laughs> like a month later. Like okay, it's one or the other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> four. Like he, who, uh, he's an angry guy. He he's killed four people. What's the big deal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when he gets interrogated by the Menominee police. I can't imagine the Menominee Police Department in the 1980s dealing with a serial killer. <laughs> uh, it must have been fucking... Does anybody's, like, dad, like... <laughs> Somebody made their career by being like, he's at the funeral. Like, they must have flown in there so fast, like... They were probably terrified. Like, we need to just get them as soon as we... <laughs> get the gun out of the locker, everybody. We're going to go make an arrest. <laughs> So when Alvin Taylor is interrogated by the Menominee police, he admits. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think that interrogation room looks like, by the way? (laughs) They sectioned off like the cafeteria. (laughs) (laughs) Can we get some cardboard under this one leg? The table's wobbling when I pound on it. Well, Taylor admits to shooting Robert Williams of Eau Claire in 1985, Daniel Lundgren of Esco, Minnesota in 1986, as well as a stabbing death of an Eau Claire resident, James Severson, in 1988. So Taylor's first victim, Robert Williams, was visiting Taylor at his rural Dunn County home which actually, how I know about this story to begin with, is that the woman who cuts my hair had mentioned to me a long time ago, hey, my boyfriend and I live in proximity to Elvin Taylor's home. And she was like, just Google serial killer. She couldn't remember his name at that time, but she's like, just Google serial killer Menominee, Wisconsin. I'm sure there's only one. And she was correct. (laughs) It's this one. So this guy comes to visit Taylor at his house, which is on the corners of County Highways J and C, in case you're wondering. This guy comes to visit him and Taylor sneaks up behind him. He shoots him and then he buries his body in the yard. Okay. What else my hairdresser told me? 
that this guy went to the homes of some neighbors, which her boyfriend knows or has been told the story by, you know, even if he didn't know about the time, that he was asking for what is that stuff that makes a body decompose? Has uh, lie? Uh, quick lime or quick? Uh... Like something, you know, he said it was like for for animals on his property. Like in 1985, a guy was coming around asking for this? Yeah, like a neighbor coming to a like neighbor. Like you'd ask for sugar? But he's... Yeah. <laughs> and like they played cards together and stuff like that. The woman who told this stuff to my hairdresser's boyfriend and her said that they were good enough friends where she had complained to Elvin Taylor, this this other woman, like frustrations about, like, about her husband sometimes. And she was like really relieved that he didn't take it seriously because she was worried that he, he would have killed him. <laughs> so anyway, so he buries him in the yard. So you know through a daisy chain of people, somebody who like played cards with... Yeah. Okay. I mean... I feel like I have some more unsettling daisy chains than that one that are less daisy chain. Um, So a year after he does that, Elvin Taylor goes and visits his second victim. Let me look at his first name because I'm scrolling between two pages here. Daniel Lundgren. Okay. That's the guy from Esco, Minnesota. This one's wild. Are you ready for it? Okay. So Taylor goes to visit Lundgren He's a former, they used to be roommates, okay? And this person at the time is living in West Bend. The pair drives out on a rural road where Taylor shoots Lundgren several times in the head and he leaves him for dead in his car. Lundgren, however, regains consciousness, drives down the road, and crashes into a ditch. His death is ruled an accident until his body was later exhumed and the bullet holes in his head were discovered when this confession happens this is why the menominee police department jumped into action when they did because otherwise you get those west bend fuckers so there was a person that crashed their car with bullet holes in their head in the 80s in west bend the people found him and we're like, oh, this is a horrible car crash. Bury him. Nobody during the autopsy makes any note of bullet holes in his head. And not until this guy confesses to the exhume him. And then they're like, oh, shit, there are bullet holes in his head. Like, who in the hell wanted to get murdered in the 80s? That's a... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's where that guy found the strength to regain consciousness. And like, I have to make it to a hospital. I'm the only one who's going to be able to to solve this one. Oh, my God. I'm sure it was some sort of... I mean, I guess if you respond to like a car crash and there's a mangled body in the car, you don't think like, hold on, guys. Let's, Let's check for foreign bodies. Yeah, the do they not like? Was the family just like, oh, it wasn't a car? Wouldn't the coroner or somebody? What? Wouldn't there be somebody who would see this person's head? If you were shot in the head in a car three times, there has got to be 
some sizable holes in there. Uh, I've been told that 22 bullets are a, a preferred choice by hitmen because at point blank, it will go through your skull, but it won't come out the other side. So it ricochets around your skull. <sighs> Hypothetically. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't know. If you had a, if a bloody like uh, wound on your head, with no medical way of like determining how deep or what caused like you know, i don't know i i don't know i i feel like the leap you would have to make to be like wait maybe he was shot in the head a bunch of times then woke up and started driving like would seem crazy <laughs> enough they'd be like fucking crazy like wisconsin roads huh <laughs> you make a compelling point see that video of the jeep that went off a fucking jump when the highway buckled wisconsin roads will kill you in any number of fascinating ways. <laughs> it's not Highway 29. Like some really hot day last year in the middle of summer, the fucking highway buckled like that. And somebody, I guess, was on a bridge. They, it must have buckled and they knew what was going to happen. So they were standing there filming. A Jeep hits it on the highway and it just fucking goes soaring. Did they land? I mean, they crashed. Just another thing you didn't know you had to be afraid of was hot days in the summer will turn the highways into like death race, yeah, <laughs> stunt shows, <laughs> yeah, or sinkholes, or well, there's there's one more murder. Yes. So in 1988, there was a foul odor that led Eau Claire police to a blood drenched apartment where they found Severson with a knife blade broken off stuck in his neck as well as multiple stab wounds wounds on his body inflicted with a butcher knife where was this that was in eau claire this is in eau claire so taylor admits to murdering that person as well someone with whom he was acquainted hold on i need i need a timeline clarification yeah uh you said he was arrested at the first guy's funeral hold on he kills robert williams in 1985 he kills Daniel Lundgren in 1986. That's the one with the holes in the head. Mm-hmm. He then kills Timothy Hayden in 1987. And then... That's Menominee. Yep. He then killed Eau Claire resident James Severson in 1988. Of those four murders, it was only the Menominee police who figured out that he was the person responsible for one murder the one of Timothy Hayden, when they arrested him, he then confessed to these other murders, some that happened before and one that happened after. Okay, but they, they arrested him at the funeral, but he but he killed another guy after that, like the year later? Ooh, boy, now that's an interesting question. I don't know how to answer that unless they arrested him. I don't know the, how to yeah, answer okay. that. Yeah, it might be. Okay, as long I, as... It I, could I, be a typo or something. Sure. I just want to make sure I'm not completely off oh, page. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, okay, yeah. Now I get why you're so confused. I... Hot dog. Because in... <laughs> well... <laughs> I mean, in 1988, I felt older. You know, it says in 1988, they found him. I don't know when he was exactly murdered, but... That is problematic. I think when we started Cool and Unusual Punishment, in those early episodes, I was already trying to pretty upfrontly try to lay the seeds for like some runners uh, in, some our, runners. in our in our podcast, some running gags in our podcast. Uh, 
And I'd like to do that again by suggesting we come up with a scale of of craziness of story. And right now we'll just put hot dog in the middle and we'll put other ones above and below it. And we'll figure out if this is like, boy, this is a real hot dog. This is a hot dogger. <laughs> I, I, when I read through this all and put it all together, it never occurred to me how strange that particular detail was. But anyway, let's just go on from there. Let's not get hung up let's, on this. Let's consider that the Menominee police were investigating the, the, and they crossed too many lines. Their police chief asked them to turn in their badge and their gun, but they couldn't let it go. So after he killed the fourth guy, that's the funeral they went to. And they just showed up in funeral attire and dragged him away. Took him to an interrogation room that was like the, an alley between two buildings like Jack Bauer would do. There you go. So when he went to trial, he was found not guilty by mental dis- disease or defect to the murders as well as an attempted murder. Hmm. What was the name of the guy who died, who crashed his car? Oh, there you go. Cause he, um, were they like, he was confessing to other murders and he Lundgren. was like, and he was like, you remember Lundgren? And they pulled up the file and they're like, yeah, car crash in the middle of the night. And he, and he's like, mm? and they're like, son of a bitch, dig him up. <laughs> I suppose that's what it means though. Let me tell you Taylor, if I find bullets in this guy's fucking head, I'm going to be so goddamn mad. So he shot that guy, but then he crashed his car. I don't know. I don't want to get hung up on that. Um, <laughs> Attempted murder. Yeah. <laughs> that's I mean, a that's... pretty, that's a pretty by the books ruling. Like, well, he didn't drive away, so then crash his own car. <laughs> yeah. As a result of those gunshots. But so state law allows Taylor, which this is an interesting note. Okay. So this guy gets found not guilty. State law says that Taylor, who has been serving a mental commitment for 25 years in Mendota, that he can petition for his conditional release every six months. So since 2010, that's kind of what Alvin Taylor's life has been, is petitioning constantly to get released. Here's just some snippets of a couple of times when this happens. So in 2013, in Menominee, it took jury members only about an hour to decide not to release, at that time, 65-year-old Alvin Taylor. That's in 2013, he's 65, from a state mental hospital. Taylor's attorney told the court his client is no longer taking medication, hasn't had a violent outburst at Mendota in the last 25 years. He had killed four people in the Chippewa Valley in the 1980s. In his closing arguments, District Attorney James Peterson had called Taylor a very dangerous man, urging the jurors to recommit him. They agreed at the hearing. So he doesn't get out. I don't know what, what this guy's appeals looks like, but I, I know I've seen videos of uh, Charles Manson who I think went through a similar process where like yeah. uh, he has the time to prepare. And I, and from what I understand, like <laughs> goes into the courtroom, like with a plan, but like, can't it's like so quickly devolves into <laughs> like, Holy shit. Get this guy back to prison. <laughs> yeah. The last time this happened was just in March of this year. The constitutional rights of convicted serial killer, Alvin Taylor have not been violated by his continued commitment at the Mendota Mental Health Institute in Madison, an appellate court ruled this month. So now he's 73. He has repeatedly been denied his attempts to seek a conditional release from his mental commitment. In an appeal filed last year, he argued that if he is no longer mentally ill, he could not continue to be held on the sole basis of dangerousness. 
the Second District Court of Appeals this month upheld a lower court ruling that Taylor can continue to be held, quote, when he poses a danger and so long as the state houses him in a facility appropriate to his condition and provides him with care and treatment to overcome that which makes him or her dangerous. So this guy just... I have no just... reason to believe that uh, the court system would overturn common sense precedent uh, and make all of our lives uh, more dangerous as a result. All right. So this is uh, our first episode. Uh, We'll figure out probably like bonus stuff uh, down the line here in a bit, but we're going to roll this into our current Patreon, patreon.com slash cool and unusual punishment. If you listen to the other podcast and are joining in on this one too, your support will support both of these on the same page. We're not going to milk you twice. And we're going to hopefully record a bunch of these before we put them out so we actually have a, they come out on time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's no, the release isn't dependent on actual investigative work. It's just dependent on us doing it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Keep that dog hot. Poof. That's my good. Thanks for listening. Bye. Rewrite your eulogies, everybody. Plot twist.